Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. Okay, Jen, I'm going to ask you some questions. Okay, Fitz, I'm going to try to answer them. Well, you got to wait till I give you... I, you, can't, you can't say anything until I give you the microphone. I'm in charge here, Jen. Okay. Okay, okay Jen. What do, you think, what do you think about competitive sports makes them so powerful? Like, why does it leave a mark on people? Because I think that... I've never really cared that much about competitive sports proper. I mean, I've cared a lot about being athletic and stuff like that, but I've just, I don't know. I've just never really been into them. And I notice it in people is that they, people will bond. They can be 20 years in age different and they'll bond over, you know, their training program from when they were 17. And I'm curious from your perspective, why are competitive sports so powerful? I mean, I think a lot of us start competitive sports when we're at a pretty formative age and, I think for a lot of people, it's the first time they've really tried that hard at anything. And that's a pretty powerful thing. And it's a pretty powerful connection with the other people who are experiencing that at the same time. I was on a competitive rock climbing team from the time I was about 11 to the time I was about 18. So all through middle school and high school. And uh, man, I loved that team. That, that team was really like a second family to me, and, and both of my coaches were kind of like a second set of parents. Those friends that I made then, I'll still run into them now, which is like, what, 10 years after I graduated from high school? And they're those type of friendships that we can just kind of pick up where we left off, where it's like that gap of months, years, however long doesn't really matter. Was it, was it hard to leave? Like, like letting go of that competition, was that hard for you to do? It wasn't really a decision for me at all. Like, I definitely trained hard. I tried hard. But 
it was pretty clear that I was never going to be a professional rock climber from pretty early on. Occasionally I'd place pretty well, but a lot of that was because competitive climbing back in, you know, starting in 98 or so was a relatively new thing. And in the Pacific Northwest, there just weren't that many girls in my category, my two-year age category, who were really that committed to the sport. So, you know, if I placed well, it was usually dependent on who showed up. But, you know, for a number of my friends who were really strong and who were consistently placing well in the tougher age categories, I can see how that decision to walk away from competitive climbing would have been much more challenging. Do you, okay, I'm going to ask one more question. Do, do, you, do you miss it ever? You know, I don't miss the competitive aspect of it particularly. I do sometimes miss having that training structure built into my life. I think kind of no matter what stage you're at in your life, we as people look for some sort of purpose to organize our lives around. And I think that competitive sports can be an easy way to feel that purpose. It's like your whole life is structured around this one thing and getting better at this one thing. And it can be kind of disorienting to walk away from that. If you focus your life around getting faster, climbing harder, throwing bigger tricks in the name of competition, there will be a moment that competition leaves you behind. That's the nature of it. Today, we're excited to welcome Sam Evans-Brown to the show. He's the host of New Hampshire Public Radio's Outside In podcast. And he brings us a story about letting go and the incredible places it can take you. I'm Fitzko Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. When I was 22, I was obsessed with cross-country ski racing. I never seriously thought I was going to the Olympics. I mean, I think everybody who's ever done well in a ski race probably hopes that maybe they can go to the Olympics. But there were always clearly people who were better than me. That doesn't mean I wasn't into it. And at one point, I was ranked pretty well nationally. And in the summer of 2008, I chased the snow down to Ushuaia, the southernmost city in the world, to train. It's the southern hemisphere, so this was their winter. I found a gig helping out at a restaurant next to the ski trails down there. I slept above the kitchen, even though the building had no heat or electricity once the generator that provided it with power went off for the day. The mattress was literally just a piece of foam, like the kind you see on the floors of drug dens and cop movies, and I heaped a pile of itchy wool blankets on top. I ate leftovers from the restaurant and smelled so much like the sled dogs that the place kept on site for tourists that when I came back to town at the end of each week to get a shower, I was chased by every stray dog I passed between the bus stop and my destination. I washed dishes, helped tourists put on snowshoes in the evening, and then held a flashlight and tromped around with them on snowmobile trails in the dark and generally just bummed around. But when I wasn't working, I was just skiing. Hours and hours of cross-country ski training every day. All that training led up to the big event in Ushuaia, a race called the Marcha Blanca. 
Historically, back before competitive cross-country ski racing was all about lycra and lightweight, narrow skis that require carefully groomed snow, the race used to cross over the spine of the Andes. But today, it's a pretty standard 13-mile race that's also kind of a festival. Hundreds of people show up to race and watch the Marcha Blanca, including many who have hardly ever skied and come wearing costumes. But there are a few competitive racers in the pack. And that is how I found myself on a starting line with Martín Bianchi. Bueno, yo estuve en Torino en el año 2006, con 24 años. That's Martín. And what he just said is that when he was 24, he went to the Winter Olympics in Torino, Italy. Martín grew up in Ushuaia. He got on skis for the first time when he was nine years old, and by the time he was 14, it was clear that he was talented. Argentina's best skier at the time suggested that I should travel to Europe, and he got me a job so that I could sleep and eat and train at the ski center, which was in Spain, the first time that I traveled. For years, he chased the snow. He would spend the northern hemisphere's winters in Spain racing in the Pyrenees, then come home, go to school, and have another ski season racing in Ushuaia. It was like the inverse of what I was doing down in Argentina. There aren't many cross-country ski racers in Argentina, and Martin very quickly became the national champion and a local hero. And in 2006, Martin heads to Torino. He had only done well enough to qualify for one race. And out of about 100 competitors, I finished 86th. So I was pretty close to last place. Such is the fate of skiers from countries without any real national team, coaches, support networks, or competitive race circuits. You spend your whole life training and then wind up 86th. And when he came back, he couldn't quite let go. Back home, Martin was still the best, with no clear successor. So even though he'd gotten married right before the Olympics and was thinking about having kids, he kept training. There's always something that's calling you back to the trails. At that time, it was that there weren't many athletes behind me. It was like, if I quit, there wouldn't be anybody. Martin got a job teaching phys ed to kindergartners, part-time. Well, because in order to train on that level, you have to have a part-time job. It's hard to have a full-time job. I asked him if he could support a family with what he was earning. No, no. So this was the state of things when I met Martin. He was still training like he was going to the Olympics, his life kind of on hold, but he wasn't going to the Olympics. When I think back on it now, in a lot of ways Martin was just a couple of years ahead of where I was when I went to Ushuaia. His love affair with skiing wasn't over, but it was clear he had gotten as far as he was going to with the sport. For me, I was going into my senior year of college, after that year, I was going to have to decide. Up until then, skiing had been the central organizing principle of every day. What's the training plan? How can I shovel enough food into my mouth to make it happen? How can I get my schoolwork done and still make it to practice? After this year, what place was this sport going to have in my life? Some of my friends, friends who were about as fast as I was, were going on to join post-collegiate teams, hoping to eventually make the U.S. ski team. Was that a good idea? It certainly sounded fun. Others had dropped skiing like a bad habit, hung up their roller skis, never to take them out again. But that didn't feel right either.
Back in Ushuaia, the race immediately separated into a pack of five skiers. And then four, and then after just a few minutes, only three of us. Martin Bianchi, Federico Cicero, a skier who would later go on to race in Sochi, and me. The course of the Marcha Blanca is a single 21-kilometer loop. It weaves in and out of the forest, but the majority of it travels over big, open plains of frozen peat moss. And all throughout the forests and the frozen bogs, there's a hidden hazard lurking. In those particular years, we were experiencing a plague. Que es el castor. The beaver. That's right, beavers. El, el castor se trajo aquí en el año 46. Beavers were brought here in 1946 for fur hats and clothing. And later, when that didn't work out, they had the bright idea of just letting them go. And when they released the 10 pairs of beavers that there were at the time, they bred and populated the entire island. Now they estimate there are over 90,000 beavers. And it has an impact on the ski trails. Often, they simply build up a dam and flood the trail. So we have to do a lot of beaver control. And back then, they weren't doing it. So there I was, skiing along, traipsing across snow-covered peat moss and beaver bogs, totally ignorant of the hazards up ahead. And the three of us were still in a pack, all together. Well, if I remember right, we were trading off who was leading as we went, and I knew in that moment that I could win. Because we were about on par with each other, and I had faith that in the final big climb, I could get some distance on you. But I got a big surprise, and I'm being sincere here, Sam, that before that climb, which they call the Subida de los Acheros, I couldn't pass you. No te pude pasar. And so I climbed the hill behind you without being able to pass you, going maybe a little slower than I would have liked to go because generally I'm good at going uphill. When we got to the top of the climb, we had to turn sharply to the right and go downhill. And this downhill ended by going over a beaver bog, much to your surprise. <laughs> Just so you can picture this here. After this long climb, there was a steep, steep downhill. Not like the kind of downhill you typically run a cross-country ski race down. It was totally straight. And on the other side of the downhill, it went straight back up the other side of a gully. And this is the kind of down-to-up transition that you hit fast. So fast that your knees had to absorb the shock of this sudden switch. And right at the bottom of that transition, the trail passed over another beaver dam and a rock. And the groomer had driven right over the top of it, making kind of a jump. Maybe it was because I was a little cross-eyed from having just hit that uphill as hard as I could. Or maybe it's because I'm just kind of a doofus. But I didn't see any of that. This downhill was very fast. It was short, but very steep. I looked ahead and saw that the tracks went over a rock, and I immediately realized there was a jump there. And there, still ahead of me, you hit the rock and went off the jump. Without meaning to. You were knocked off balance and you went off the trail. And I passed you. I did manage to stay on my feet, but I was standing way off the trail with deep, heavy powder up to my knees or so, and I remember my heart just sinking to my stomach. We weren't far from the finish, and I was almost positive the race was over. And it was in that moment that I said, well, that's it. It's over. I passed you with all the speed from this downhill slope. So right there, I took 15, 20 meters from you, easy. 
and you still had to make your way back onto the trail and regain your momentum. So I had this fantastic opportunity to go, to keep hammering and leave you behind. But to tell you the truth, something happened in my head that told me this wasn't right. You had climbed the hill well, you had done the downhill well. The only thing is that you hadn't noticed that the trail had a jump in it. A thing that shouldn't have been there. And it was because of that jump that you went off the trail. You lost all your momentum. And to me, the right thing to do seemed to be to wait for you. When I looked over, I saw Martin had slowed down. And as he glided past, he looked back over his shoulder and I heard him call out. I flailed my way out of the powder and frantically skied back up the hill trying to catch Martin. Given how slow he was going, it didn't take long. And then it was nip and tuck again. The rest of the race was a bit of a blur. Right before the finish, our course merged into the trail being used by the more popular event with people skiing in costumes. We were sprinting, dodging people left and right. You were shouting, I was shouting, it was a mess. When there were just 500 meters left, this I remember. I was pretty tired. And I saw you with this drive, this energy. That's when I realized you were going to beat me. And I did. For me, that was the end of the story. I won a race. They gave me a trophy. I went home. And having won the National Ski Championship of Argentina was an eccentric biographical detail that I could share at parties. That year went probably about as well as it could have for me. For the first time, I was one of the 40 skiers nationwide who qualified for NCAA championships. But despite having trained harder than I ever had and having spent a good chunk of the summer actually on snow, in the first race of NCAAs, I went out way too hard. I blew up in an epic way and finished third from last. In the second race, I did okay, 27th. It was kind of like Martin in Torino. I made it there, did well enough to be satisfied, but any delusion I might have had about being fast enough to keep racing was over. As for Martin, we fell out of touch. But then, years later, an email arrives in my inbox from Martin. It turns out there was something else that happened that day, something I had completely forgotten. After the race, I came up to him. And you asked me, you came up to me and you asked, Martin, you waited for me when I fell? I said, yeah, sure, Sam. I waited because I wanted us to have a clear winner. And we left it at that. But later, when we're at the award ceremony, you tried to give me the cup, the trophy. I said, no, you keep it. It just so happened that someone from the Argentine Olympic Committee had seen me try to give Martin the trophy and asked, what happened? And I told them what had happened. I told them the whole story. And for that year, 2008, they decided that the most exemplary gesture of sportsmanship in all of Argentina was this situation that happened in the Marcha Blanca. So they invited me to Buenos Aires for a dinner, a very big deal, a gala banquet, and they gave me a prize in front of all of the Olympic medalists from Argentina. This included the Argentine soccer team who won the gold medal in Beijing that year. 
He met his country's equivalent of Bob Costas, the Olympics host for NBC, and had an article written about him in the country's biggest newspaper. Just imagine doing some obscure adventure race, someplace like Fairbanks, Alaska. Now imagine that you did something nice for somebody in that race, and then out of nowhere, totally out of the blue, somebody important noticed, and the next thing you know, they've put you on a plane to New York City, crammed you into a tuxedo, and stood you up in front of a crowd of the country's most famous athletes. LeBron James, Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, whoever. They hand you an award, snap your photo, and then you're interviewed for an article in the New York Times. That's what this would be like. Bueno, fue un muy grato recuerdo. This was one of my best memories. So this race is going to stay with me for the rest of my life. And after getting this prize, I think it was kind of like a signal that things were all right, that I could retire, that I had done enough. I had left enough of a mark on the sport. That one split-second decision kicked off a chain reaction for Martin. After the banquet and the award, the Argentine government offered him a job in the Ministry of Sport, which paid much better than a part-time phys ed teacher. He and his wife finally felt like they could support a family. And now the two of them have three kids. And now, when Martin races, he does it for fun. He's hung up his commitment to ski racing, but not his love for it. The next year, just to give you an idea, in 2009, I did the Mancha Blanca in a Tiger costume. I went from having been on the podium with you, second place, to the next year putting on a Tiger costume and skiing the race together with my wife. That was how I ended my racing career. I still have a hard time letting go of skiing. There were a few years after college where I was still going pretty fast, despite having no reason to race, except, you know, enjoying it. And even today I race. But my priorities have landed on other things. Building a family, building a house, meaningful work. This year, I've even started coaching the local high school ski team, hoping to give some kids a taste of what was, in reality, my first love. Martin still does his local races too, but now he's teaching his own kids to ski. I could try to offer some sort of lesson here about how it doesn't matter if you're a world champion or not, you should just do what you love and take it as far as you can, but maybe no further. But instead, I'll just finish off with one last chapter to Martin's and my story. This past summer, I got an alert from Facebook. Another friend from Argentina had tagged me in a photo. When I clicked on the link, there was a photo of a city bus down in Ushuaia, and plastered all over the side of it was a larger-than-life picture of Martin and I racing in the front of the Marcha Blanca. Maybe you really never can leave the races behind. The diaries would not be possible without the good people at Patagonia, who partnered with Hopworks Urban Brewing to bring you Long Root Ale, a Northwest-style pale ale made with organic ingredients and Kernza perennial grain. 
just one more tasty step in transforming agricultural practices to support sustainable farming. You can find Long Root Ale in Whole Foods stores in California, Oregon, and Washington. And if you don't live on the West Coast, it's just one more reason to come and visit us. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, a motley crew of dreamers and schemers who have pooled together their talents to bring you lightweight, stylish, and easy-to-use hitch racks, roof racks, and accessories. Check out their lineup at kuatracks.com. Kuat, because you love your bike. Support for the show comes from you. That's right, the listeners. Whether it's a story submission or a song we use on the show, a note of thanks or a donation, you make our lives easier. Thank you. To pledge your support, visit dirtbagdiaries.com and click the button in the upper right-hand corner. A huge thank you to everyone who has donated already. A version of the story originally aired on Outside In, a podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio about the natural world and how we use it. You can find a link to the version of that piece on our website. Sam's the host of that podcast, so if you want to hear more of his work, I totally suggest that you go check out Outside In. It's a great show. Thank you, Sam. Music today from Publish the Quest, Little Glass Men, Ken Christensen, and Bradley Carter. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive or with the permission of the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Kotos composed our theme song. As always, you can find links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by the team at Outside In, Sam Evans-Brown and Logan Shannon, with help from Marin McCurry, Taylor Quimby, Molly Donahue, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Martin's voice was translated by Luis Antonio Perez. The story was edited for the diaries by Jen Altschul and me, Fitzka Hall. Becca Call is our executive producer. You have been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Hold up. 